You're listening to Future X, brought to you by Future Design School. When was the last time you had a visit to the doctor? Was there anything about your experience that could have been better? What are the odds that experience will improve in the future? Today, we try and take a step forward and learn from the incredible doctor and design thinker, Dr. Bon Ku, who is actively working to solve some of the big challenges that both doctors and patients are facing. Ladies and gentlemen, let me introduce to you that future. That future. That future. That future. Yes. It's really fascinating and optimistic. I'm like, oh my god. That's a very, very real possibility. That's my vision for the future. I am Bon Ku, and I am an assistant professor for health and design at Thomas Jefferson University in Philadelphia. And I am also a practicing emergency medicine physician. What was the experience that led you to embracing user-centered design and becoming so passionate about teaching other medical practitioners? The emergency room is a very difficult place to work. And in the U.S., it's the safety net of our healthcare system because it's the only place where if you are uninsured that you have a legal right to get care. And I, I, I love that. But what ends up happening when you work in a place that is the safety net for a country is that you see all the problems in the emergency department, everything from the opioid crisis, uh, which are which is devastating our communities, uh, problems of homelessness, to lack of access to care, especially for those who are uninsured, you know, they all show up at in my ER um, at two o'clock in the morning. And what I found just kind of so difficult is how in the world am I going to solve these problems? These problems were just so challenging. And, you know, it, it's really easy to get burned out. And I, was, and I was feeling that early on in my career. And I didn't have a framework for knowing how to be able to go about looking at really tough problems and figure out how to create solutions for them. So I uh, had this opportunity given to me through the dean of my medical school to run a program on design thinking and to work with medical students right when they enter during the first year and posing these challenges that they're going to face one day when they you know, finish their training, which is going to be a long time. Right? It's like four years of medical school, three to five years of residency. But they're going to be facing these tough challenges working as um, providers. And you know, I hope to give them an extra tool to be able to know how to think creatively, to apply their imaginations, to think about being more than just technicians and to provide um, human-centered care. What type of problems can they use the design process to solve? So we, we find using a design process and thinking like a designer is very helpful to approaching uh, complex problems. And you know, and, and the problems in healthcare are so complex. They're just these wicked problems with no clear solutions. Uh, let's take let's take medical errors in, in the U.S. It's the third leading cause of, of death, which is freaking crazy, right? Like that is like it just it, it's it's crazy. And 
And and the way we currently deal with it now, if you know, if I make a mistake or if a patient has a bad outcome, I get an email from a scary administrator, and there's uh, meetings that are held, and it's extremely stressful, you know, because the stakes are so high that we don't want to make mistakes. You know, the repercussions are a huge for morbidity and mortality. But I think often, like individuals are blamed, whether it's a physician or a nurse or a technician, instead of you know taking a step back and looking at the whole system and thinking, well, was the system designed so that a clinician made a mistake, that it was nearly impossible for him or her to not get distracted or to forget to give the right dosage of medication? And what design allows us to do is kind of take that step back and to reframe the problem and and think about creative solutions. We've done some of that in in our program where, you know, we we took on the challenge of how to reduce errors associated with patients who are diagnosed with sepsis who uh, presents to the emergency department and created this um, checklist of making sure the critical actions are done before a patient goes uh, upstairs into uh, an intensive care unit or, or inpatient floor. But thinking about, you know, how, how can we design systems that make it really hard for us to make errors or to fail? That's fascinating about medical errors. And that's something I didn't know. So it makes me really just kind of think about my recent experiences, um, you know, in a, in a doctor's office and what types of errors could have gone wrong. But then it also makes me think, as you're explaining it, that, you know, failure is a part of the design process. And if there's not a lot of room for mistakes in a medical field, really, how tolerant is the medical community when it comes to failure and working through the design process? You know, I, I think it's because when, when we look at, you know, when we do these root cause analysis of when medical errors do happen or when mistakes do happen, when there are bad outcomes, it's very reactionary, right? You know, there's a bad case that occurs and, you know, we do our due diligence and think about, you know, what happened, what, what led to this, but we have to be more proactive. We have to think about when we are developing a new medical device or product, when we are thinking about the services that we provide on an inpatient floor or an intensive care unit or outpatient primary care clinic, that we're designing in a way that makes it hard for the humans to make mistakes, right? I think of um, this past year when there was that missile alert in Hawaii. Remember that? You know, everyone started freaking out because they're like, oh my gosh, you know, run for cover. And I'm thinking that that is a design failure, right? I'm not going to blame that poor guy who maybe pressed that button to send off that alert. But that system should never be designed for the mistake to happen that easily. And so when I look at how a lot of our systems or processes work in the hospital, it's too easy for us to make mistakes. On top of that, you throw in people and doctors who are, you know, working 80, you know, 100 hour weeks or sleep deprived who constantly get interrupted. Of course, we're going to make mistakes. It's like I said earlier, it's awesome to have you here. And I've been really looking forward to speaking with you as I've done a lot of the research. Uh, one of the things that I started to think about was really the role of the doctor and what the current role of the doctor is, what the role of the doctor would be in the future. So 
I'm hoping you can provide us some insight on how the role of the doctor is changing. For sure. For I mean, I think the whole healthcare system is blowing up right now. We're at this weird moment in history with the digital industrial revolution. And I think, you know, we're kind of struggling as physicians to figure out how we fit into this system that is completely changing. For example, when I started medical school, we had actually paper charts and now I can access the electronic healthcare record on my iPhone. And and the experience of patients uh, was something I didn't really pay much attention to or wasn't paid attention to when I was training. But now we have you know, health systems with patient experience officers. Uh, patients give doctors ratings uh, like they would on a restaurant, on, a, on the Yelp app. And doctors are really being asked to do a lot more in uh, shrinking amounts of time. So you say that they're they're asked to do a, a lot more. How do you think they're responding to that? It's tough. Uh, if, for example, the uh, electronic healthcare record that I mentioned before, we, um, you know, that was seen as the solution, the technological solution to make clinicians' lives easier, right? Because you know, no longer would we have to write on paper medical records and try to decipher a doctor's handwriting, which is terrible. My mine is very terrible as well. I could. Sometimes I can't even read my own handwriting. And so we got this uh, great system. And what ends up happening is that, you know, I spend a lot more hours doing charting because it's a system that really does not make my life easier. And, you know, consistently um, hours after my shift, I have to complete, uh, stay and stay in my office and, and do charting in the electronic health record. And it's even blamed as or cited as one of the major factors causing burnout in physicians. So it's ironic that a technological solution that was supposed to save doctors time just ended up doing the reverse and adding more time onto the doctor's workflow. You know, I love the idea of measuring, doing quantitative measurements of, of doctors, you know, and our outcomes. But it also has some negative uh, repercussions that we are being measured for a lot and lot of things. And, you know, we're all, you know, constantly trying to see where we fit in into all these measurement scales, make sure we're increasing patient satisfactions to make sure we're, you know, maximizing that revenue that we are seeing enough patients. And it's adding a lot of stress uh, in, in the medical community. Burnout is a, a huge concern among physicians, you know, especially with my specialty of emergency medicine. We have some of the highest burnout rates, and it's being really taken up as something that the medical community is paying a lot of attention to of how we prevent burnout among physicians. And I don't, I don't see that abating, and I, and I think we got to really be thoughtful of how we prevent burnout in physicians because a burned out physician is not going to give good care. They're going to give burned out care. It seems a little counterintuitive that the technology is helping increase efficiency, but it's kind of adding more work for doctors. Is that the fault of technology? Is it the fault of implementation? So really, where are things falling apart? Yeah, I, I think it's I think it's really the the fault of the design intent of the technology, the electronic health record. It's a billing document, it's a billing record, and so it, its design intent is that the payers know how much they can get paid, that physicians can charge for the services rendered, 
and it is not designed to increase the efficiency of clinicians. And I, and I think that's changing. You know, I think we are seeing that the user experience really needs to be changed for a lot of electronic health records in order to improve uh, the efficiency of clinicians. Okay, so you're talking a lot about the, the doctor experience and the role of the doctor. What about the role of the patient and the patient experience? How is that changing in all of that? I think that the patient experience is becoming much more relevant in the field of medicine. You know, medicine historically has been very paternalistic, and it's been one-sided conversations where doctors have had all the information, and there's been a power differential, and especially in knowledge. But with patients being able to access really good information online, it's become more equalized. And let's, you know, talking about electronic health records, and now there's a you know company called Open Notes where patients can actually log on to their electronic health records and see what I'm writing about them. And, you know, they have a peek into their own uh, records, into their own data. So I, I think having an increased voice for patients is actually helping uh, the, the healthcare system. So do you see the, the access to patients having more information? Do you see a shift in doctors and patients being more collaborative and less one-sided as it was before? Oh, totally, totally. I mean, you know, you can't write, I mean, you, you think a little bit more about what you're going to write in the chart. You know, you think more about uh, shared decision-making instead of, you know, me telling a patient who comes in with chest pain to the emergency department that, I think you should just get admitted so you could get a cardiac stress test. But, you know, to have a conversation with a patient and go, well, you know, here, here are the pros, here are the cons of getting admitted to the hospital. And, you know, let's come up with a plan together. And, you know, not all patients want that, right? Because for so long, doctors have just given advice and patients have listened to it. But, you know, a lot of patients really appreciate that they become an active agent in their own decision-making process. And I think we're going to see a lot more of that. It's not going to be a passive role that patients are going to be playing in, in their care. So really, in a way, I guess the pressure of transparency that increases the needs for doctors to be more patient-centered. Is Am I understanding that correctly? Absolutely. And I think the rise of uh, consumerism in healthcare is uh, very transformative that we really need to think about our end user. You know, the end users in healthcare are our patients. You know, for me personally to, you know, think of the patient as more than just their disease. You know, they, they are a human and they come in and out of our hospitals and clinics. And to think about, you know, you know, what, what's health? You know, it's, it's just not the absence of disease, you know, but it is how human can do the things that were, they were meant to do. You know, our roles are changing where, where we have to think more, more holistically about the patients that, that we see. So relationships and the, the human connection, are those things taught well in medical school? Medical school? Is, there, is there room for improvement? There is absolutely room for, for improvement for that, right? So historically, it was taught poorly. And 
uh, med schools were finally, you know, we're realizing we, we need to teach uh, physicians to become better communicators. I mean, that is if, if you have a doctor who doesn't communicate well, the medicine is going to be terrible, right? I, you, even me, when I, I hate seeing doctors and when I go see a doctor and if that doctor can't connect with me or if I can't connect to that doctor and he, he's not a good communicator, I don't care if he's the best, you know, the top specialist in the world in his or her field. I'm just not going to see that doctor. So, you know, I think med schools are trying to do a better job at, at making doctors to be better communicators. That's why we've seen these uh, humanities curriculums that are being introduced in, in medical schools. And that wasn't always the case. My, my background, I, I studied, I was a classical studies major in, in college. So I had this kind of background and being able to articulate my thoughts in, you know, in speech and in, in writing. And I, I think that was some of the best training for me to become a physician, to be able to communicate my ideas, to be able to communicate with the patients that I see. No problem. So when you're talking about user-centered design and keeping the patients at the center of everything, what role does that play in the future of medicine? It really comes from, I think, historically, uh, the patients have not been at the center. So, you know, when we have been uh, creating the products and services and spaces uh, in, in healthcare, that because patients have not been at the center, their experiences have been often, you know, not, not good ones. Um, for example, if you think about healthcare spaces, you know, uh, you know, I, I work in a busy urban emergency department and, you know, patients are in stretchers and hallways and it's been that way for decades. And, you know, kind of thinking about the future, why would we ever build a hospital where you're, you're sick and then you are placed in a hallway structure? We should not design our physical healthcare spaces for that. And if, if we really want to be uh, patient-centered. So are, are most doctors equipped to understand user-centered design, or is that unique to you, you, your school, and your role? I think more doctors are becoming more aware of uh, user-centered design and design in general, but it's still, it's, it's still a foreign concept. A lot of times when we think of design, we think of you know, the design maybe of the furniture that we see or uh, the layout of a particular room. And so what we try to do in our education program, we, we started the first human-centered design program in the medical school. And, you know, we, we work a lot with designers and try to introduce this methodology around putting the human at the center of designing for the end user of co-creating with, with, with the end user. Cause I, you know, I think we're going to see a lot more of that in healthcare where in order to provide better care, we, we need to focus on, on the end user. So when you say that the doctors are aware of really this user centered design, uh, what do you think is the next step for them to kind of understand and start to implement some of those practices? I think for so long, we've been working in such a dysfunctional system and trying to optimize our practice in, in the dysfunctional system. And, and I think 
taking a step back, I think we forget that most things in healthcare have been designed by someone or something, right? The, the hospitals and clinics that we work in and the electronic health records that we use, the, um, the medical devices that we use for patients. And, and I think we are kind of like seeing, well, if it's been designed, there's an opportunity to design it better. And so that's what I we try to teach to our students who are going to be the next generation of, of leaders, that instead of working with something that is so dysfunctional, whether it's a medical device or product, whether it's the system that you're in or the kind of the services that are provided, that we teach them that there's an opportunity to redesign. Well, that makes me think about it. Yeah, I hope doctors aren't going to be replaced. I don't know how I'd be able to explain my problems to a robot comfortably. Um, or whatever it might be, but, you know, you, you introduce all of those technologies and, you know, I start, what, what exactly, what new skills will doctors need to solve the problems of the future, whether it's five, 10, 15 years from now, what do they don't have that they, they will need then? You know, I think historically what has been the essential ingredients for good medicine is is still that relationship that a physician has with her patient that at the core it is a relationship and there's still this human to human interaction you know that human to human interaction may occur via telehealth platforms it may be a virtual experience but it's still one human connecting to another and that allows us you know that when when we develop that trust and we can obtain a better history, that we can understand what is the best treatment plan for, for that patient. So as healthcare becomes more digital, as, as, it, as it shifts away from hospitals and clinics into patient homes, we have to build these systems to make sure that we humanize these systems because it's the default is for these uh, systems become uh, depersonal. We need to just humanize those new products and services that are being developed. So what advice do you have for anyone who's interested in going to medicine? So specifically those currently at in university? Uh, I would say make sure you get enough sleep right now because you're going to be sleep provided for the next decade. You know, I, I mentor a lot of students. Um, both in medical school and residency and those applying to medical school. And when I read their essays and ask students, you know, why they want to go into medical school, there's this genuine need or genuine interest and sincerity about really wanting to help other people. And it's always inspiring. But then, but then when I see them at the end of their training, Whatever idealism that they had, I think this culture of medicine beats it out of them. And, you know, it's a very kind of dehumanizing experience. And, you know, after we finish our training, we work in a broken system and, and it's so easy to become burned out. So I, I think what's been helpful uh, to me personally is to think about the health of the communities from where my patients have, have come from. And, and to be involved not only in you know, delivering care to the um, patient right in front of me, but uh, to think about how it can make the community from where they came from uh, healthier. And that's led us to a lot of our work that we do in Kensington, which is in the 
uh, north section of Philadelphia. It's really at the heart of the opioid crisis, and it's just a daunting problem. And it's so easy for uh, for us to become cynical and jaded and, and just to give up because the problem is too big. But for, for us, you know, we have decided as um, to kind of engage that community and to create uh, new programs and services uh, addressing that community. Just yesterday, one of my fourth year medical students, uh, Terry Gao, who just you know won an award for from the American Heart Association on a on a program of delivering healthy meals to residents in Kensington. And you know that's something that's not really taught in medical school, right? We're you know, we're taught the craft of medicine and delivering care in clinics and in hospitals, but you know I I, I think this experience is going to stick with her of thinking about food access in underserved communities and thinking more about just the patient that that we see in our our in, in the clinics and hospitals, but kind of thinking about their communities and and how we can help out the communities from where they came from. Otherwise, we're just treating patients in hospitals, putting them back out into their communities where you know, these social determinants of health, these non-medical factors, really just make them sick again. And they're going to be making decisions uh, that aren't healthy ones. And you know, what can we do to go upstream to try to change those uh, uh, social determinants? You might be feeling much like I did after speaking with Dr. Koo. I was really feeling overwhelmed by the size and scope of some of the challenges in healthcare. And quite frankly, I'm still a little unsettled by the high morbidity rate attributed to medical mistakes. But ultimately, I'm extremely hopeful and inspired by Dr. Koo and his efforts to take on the wicked challenges in healthcare and his passion to prepare the next generation of physicians to do the same. I'm excited to keep an eye on Dr. Koo and his students and what they do to improve the future of healthcare And I'm also very interested in what you will do or are doing to help shape the future of healthcare as well. Whether you're a doctor or a patient, feel free to continue the conversation online with us on Twitter. You can find us at FutureX Podcast. A huge thank you today going out to Dr. Bonku for taking the time out of his amazingly busy schedule to share his expertise and insight. You can follow him on Twitter at Bonku. That's at B-O-N-K-U. And learn more about his efforts to bring design and medicine together at design-health.com slash bond-coup. Coming up in the next episode of Future X, we shift from human medicine to animal medicine when we catch up with Dr. Adam Little to discuss the future health of pets and the technology revolution that awaits. Thank you for joining the Future X podcast. I'm Quinn Henderson, and I can't wait to hear what you will do to shape our future. Future.